Amen. Well, you can all be seated. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ken. I am the Connections Pastor here at Salem. So if I haven't had a chance to connect with you, I would love to do so and also help you get connected to our church family if that's something that you're looking for in your life. So today we start off our Christmas uh, sermon series titled a Thr- or The Thrill of Hope, and specifically today we're talking about the need for a king, or maybe more importantly, our need for a king. Now, I don't know about your family, but our family loves Christmas time. I think my son Reese may love it most of all. Uh, It would not be unusual for him in mid-July to utter the words, Alexa, play Christmas songs. And we'll be listening to them in the middle of July. We've been listening to Christmas music around our house for almost two months already. What is it about Christmas? You know, much of the world pauses and recognizes the birth of a carpenter's son in a small, little, out-of-the-way town in a remote part of the world. This baby would grow up to be a carpenter himself, but also a teacher and a healer. His ministry lasted for only about three years, from the age of 30 to 33, and then he died a criminal's death. For all intents and purposes, we should not even know who this guy is. His teachings and movement should have died with him on a cross over 2,000 years ago. Yet most of our Western world pauses. What is it about Christmas? You know, think about it. Regardless of whether a person identifies himself as a Christ follower or not, most people embrace Christmas. You know, we go into businesses that have absolutely no religious affiliation at all, and they'll be playing songs about a baby in a manger during this time of year. Think about the TVs and movie specials. I think there may be more Christmas movies out there than about any other genre of movie. And if you think about it, almost every Christmas movie is at the end of the day about hope, about hope for something. Movies about extravagant generosity or finding love, or a restored relationship, or reconciling a past, or recognizing what's important. There is something about the hope that Christmas brings. There's an anticipation about this season that the world recognizes, an almost indescribable hope that billions lean on. And you may not realize it, but the whole Bible is about the coming of this baby and the hope that this baby would bring. And you may not think about it this, in this way, but Christmas is centered around a king, a king that we call Jesus. And as Christ followers, our hope is in Jesus. Well, in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this morning, we're going to take a a look at the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we're going to go all the way up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want to help you see the ebbs and flows of Scripture, like the highs and the lows, tracing the idea of hope from beginning to end, talking about how hope wanes, but hope remains. And hope up here is in all caps because our God is the God 
of hope. And we're going to cover 1,700 years of history in about 30 minutes, so buckle up, all right? Now, as we listen to these accounts in your note, there, notes, there are two questions. If you got the, the bulletin when you came in, and the first question is this, what hope crushers from the Old Testament can you relate to as we look at these stories and we see the different ways that people experience disappointment, which of those hope crushers can you relate to? And then the second question is this, what hope lifters from the Old Testament do you need to cling on to? Do you need to grasp and take hold of and cling on for dear life? One of the things I love about the Bible is how I can relate to the stories of the individuals that lived thousands of years ago and how I see myself in their hopes and disappointments, and how I learn from God how to navigate life by reading and reflecting on these stories. And as we go through these passages, notice the roller coaster of hope, the ups and downs, the scary times, and the exhilarating times. In our highest of highs and our lowest of lows, hope remains. How many of you can relate to having really, really high hopes? And then just having those hopes crushed. How many of you have put your hope in something only to see it fall short, but then you keep hoping? Okay, let me ask a different but related question. How many of you are Vikings fans? <laughs> if you are, you know this pain. Almost weekly, right? We get our hopes up here and then they get crushed. Like it's, it's a weekly emotion that we're experiencing. Well, it all starts with hope. Adam and Eve in, in Genesis chapter 2, they live in this perfect relationship with God. There's transparency and openness. It actually says that Adam and Eve walked around the Garden of Eden naked. And why were they able to do that? It was because the feeling of shame didn't even exist. Like there was no thought of shame. There'd never been a point in time. There was no sin, no darkness, nothing which caused them to feel like they had to hide anything. And they had this beautiful open relationship with God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent enters the story. And God had given Adam and Eve just one rule. And he said this, I don't want you to, you can do pretty much anything you want, but I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this serpent enters into the scene, and it's actually Satan posing as a serpent. And he has a conversation with Eve, and he says, well, why can't you eat from that tree? Wouldn't it be great if you knew the difference between good and evil? If you did, you could be like God. And so Eve succumbs to this concept, and she has some of the fruit, and Adam does the same. And all of a sudden, for the first time ever, they feel something they've never felt before in their lives, and that's shame. A darkness enters the world. Sin enters the world for the very first time. And it says that God walks into the garden just shortly thereafter, and he's looking around for Adam and Eve, and they're nowhere to be found. He says, where are you? And they said, Adam says, well, we're hiding. And he says, why are you hiding? He says, because we're naked. And he says, who told you you were naked? And all of a sudden, they know what it's like to experience shame and regret and there's a betrayal and a lack of trust that enters in. And God is holy and he can have no part of a relationship. There's a separation that develops because of the sin that exists. How many of you have experienced hope lost through broken relationships or the betrayal 
of someone you trusted or loved. The beauty is, though, God does not leave them there for very long at all. Do you know that the first promise God ever made was actually about Christmas? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this is God talking to Satan. So God says, I will put enmity, meaning hostility or strife. I'm going to put fighting between you and the woman. Again, Satan is you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. So between your ancestors and her ancestors, there is going to be contention. Satan will try to pull you down and push you down. And there will always be a problem. But he makes this promise, he says he, and this he, he's referring to Jesus, the Savior that would come a couple thousand or thousands of years later. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, meaning that Satan's going to nip at your heel. But Jesus is going to crush Satan's head. In an Advent devotional I've been reading called The Journey to Christmas, it says somewhere along the line, Among Eve's offspring, there would come a Savior who would rid Satan of his power to separate God from man. Satan would try to stop him, but the Savior would crush his head. And there's no coming back from that. And ultimately, it is Jesus who wins the battle. But in the meanwhile, we wait. And Adam and Eve and their offspring would populate the world. Their kids would have kids who would have kids who would have kids who would have kids who would have kids who... You get the idea. And there's thousands, if not millions, of people surrounding or spread around the world. And we fast forward 500 years to the time of Noah. And all of the people, there was just a wickedness that existed in them. They were all self-serving. They were doing things to harm others. There was an evilness. And when God looked at them in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Like man was just evil. And the Lord regretted, think about that, he regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart because he made man for relationship with man, for humankind. But there was one righteous person that walked the face of the earth at that time, someone who loved and followed God, and that was a guy by the name of Noah. And he was married and had a couple kids and God made a decision to have a flood wipe out all of mankind and wipe out all of the animals. And you probably know the story of Noah. Noah and his wife and kids were spared. They spent six months or longer on the ark. And eventually when the flood subsided, God made a promise to Noah. To notice, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. I will establish my covenant with you. So he makes a promise. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, he says this to Noah. I have set my bow or my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. He says, I have made this promise and every time you see a rainbow, I want you to remember this promise that I made to the people of God that I'd never wipe them out again. How many of you have ever seen just one of those beautiful, perfect rainbows up in the sky, like where you see the brilliant colors and you can't help but just imagine and think of the awesomeness of God, the creativity and the beauty. And he said, forever, when you see a rainbow, think of me and remember my promise.
Well, then several hundred years uh, later, the people were gathered in one area and they were all speaking the same language. In this portion of the Bible, Genesis chapter 11 is called the Tower of Babel. And the people decide we're going to build a tower up into the heavens because they want to elevate themselves. They want to glorify themselves. And God gets frustrated with them. And all of a sudden, he makes them all speak different languages so that they cannot understand one another. That's where we get our word babbling from. Like they were babbling. They couldn't communicate to one another. And hope waned again, and they kind of went their separate ways. In about 500 years, well, hope wanes, hope wanes, but again, hope remains. Even though this was going on, there's still a hope that remains because God is always faithful. Well, about 500 years after Noah, Abraham, would, Abram, who would become Abraham, was a righteous man. He's a follower of God. And... The Lord makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. He's talking to Abraham. He said, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you're a Christ follower, you are blessed to be a blessing. And then he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What he means is because of your ancestors, one of whom would eventually be Jesus Christ, all of the world will be blessed. All of the world will have hope, and hope is restored. There's a hope that's given to the world at that point in time. But we fast forward just 25 years later, and Abraham and his wife Sarah find themselves almost 100 years old and they don't have a wife. Or Abraham, or they don't have a wife, he's got a wife, Sarah. They don't have a baby. And they're like, Lord, you promised, you said that our ancestors would be spread throughout the world and yet we have no child. And then in Genesis 17, 6, the Lord says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And a year later, their son Isaac is born and hopes are sky high. If you've ever had a baby or adopted a child, there are all kinds of hopes that go with that. And Abraham and Sarah had high hopes. But when the boy was still young, their hopes would wane again. As a matter of fact, their hopes would be crushed as God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 2. He says to Abraham, take your son. He's talking about Isaac, your only son, Isaac. This sounds a little bit like John 3, 16. Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And I can imagine that his hopes were just absolutely crushed, that Abraham was devastated. And I can imagine that walk to Moriah. He loads up his son, they've got two servants, and he's got fire and he's got wood, and they're walking to this place where he's been asked to sacrifice his only son. And I've got to believe for Abraham that was the longest, most excruciating walk of his life. And somewhere along the way, his son Isaac says to him, Dad, we have fire and we have wood, but where's the sacrifice that we're going to offer? And I got to imagine with just the biggest lump in his throat, Abraham says, well, God will provide the sacrifice. 
But in Abraham's mind, that was his son who was walking with him, but he couldn't say that to him. Well, then they get to the place where the sacrifice is supposed to happen. And Abraham builds an altar and he bounds up his son Isaac and he lifts a knife to sacrifice his only son out of obedience and love for his God. God says to him in Genesis 35, I think it's, uh, no, you're right. He's Genesis 22. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket of thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And I've got to imagine that the joy that returned to his heart was absolutely immeasurable and incredible. This also is kind of pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus would be for us on our behalf. And his hopes are lifted again. Well, Isaac, Isaac would go on to have a son by the name of Jacob, and Jacob would settle in the land of Canaan. And, and Jacob was given the name Israel. In Genesis 35, 10, and 11, we read, God said to him, he's talking to Jacob, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. He says, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will, shall come from you. And kings, get it, kings shall come from your own body. And this is the birth of the Israelite nation. This is the first time we hear the name Israel. And, and Israel, Jacob, would go on to have 12 sons, and those 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So he has 12 boys, but there's kind of a problem. There's some dysfunctionality in this family because, because Jacob loves one more than all the others, a son by the name of Joseph, and Joseph's the 11th born brother, okay? And he absolutely dotes over Joseph. He gives Joseph this beautiful coat that's far more beautiful than any of the coats that his brothers have. And then Joseph, uh, not only fit with pretty high hopes because he's the favorite son, he has a couple of dreams. And, one of the, and in those two dreams, his brothers are bowing down to him and his dad and mom are bowing down to him. And I'm guessing for Joseph, he probably had pretty high hopes. It's like, boy, my life is looking great. But in the meanwhile... What do you think is happening in the hearts and minds of his brothers? I know my brothers would have been pretty ticked if this was the situation, right? And they're getting angry. And they start to scheme and think up a way, maybe we can kill our brother Joseph. But then they decide to sell him into slavery and he's sold to some Ishmaelites. And he's forced into slavery and he moves to Egypt. And so... Joseph goes from these incredibly high hopes and gets sold into slavery and his hopes fade. And he's like, what just happened? And he ends up becoming a slave in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar is a captain in the army's guard and in the Pharaoh's guard. And he's, got, he's a wealthy guy. And while Joseph is serving in, uh, 
in Potiphar's house. Things go super well for him. It says that God was with him and he succeeded at everything he was involved in. And even though he was a slave and even though he was a servant to somebody else, I feel like his hope had to swell a little bit, right? He had to feel pretty good because he was loved by his master and things were going well. He was given responsibility. But unfortunately, Potiphar's wife was super attracted to Joseph. And on several occasions, she tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph, being a righteous guy, resists and resists and resists. And eventually, she gets so fed up that she yells rape. She falsely accuses Joseph of rape. And what happens? Potiphar gets ticked off and he throws Joseph in jail. And i got to imagine, once again, Joseph's hopes are just crushed. But while he's in jail, he spends several years there. And we read in Genesis 39, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and Joseph, uh, and the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so once again, we're told that God is with Joseph. And maybe you find yourself imprisoned right now. Maybe you're imprisoned by debt or by a destructive relationship or a recurring addiction or a job that you can't stand. You need to know the Lord is with you. He'll never forsake you and he'll see you through this and his steadfast love will continue to show up. Well, a couple years later, Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, he has a, a couple of dreams. And he's asking like his wise counselors to try to interpret these dreams, but nobody can figure out what the dreams mean. And then somebody from uh, his court says, hey, there's a guy in prison by the name of Joseph who I've heard is pretty good at interpreting dreams. You should get him. And so Joseph says, or Pharaoh calls Joseph out of prison, invites him into the palace or wherever they were gathering. And he says, I hear that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, I can't, but God can. Tell me your dream. And so Pharaoh goes on to tell him this dream. And after, the tree, after he finishes telling him the dream, Joseph says, this is what it means. This dream means that for seven years, things are going to go good in Egypt. Like you're going to have a ton of water, you're going to have green grass, you're going to have healthy and bountiful crops, your livestock are going to be fat and healthy, you're going to make tons of money, things are going to go awesome. But at the end of that seven years, there's going to be a famine like you've never seen. There's going to be a dryness that takes upon the land that causes wither, withering and crops to die and there will be starvation. He says, and if you don't prepare for this, Egypt's doomed. It's in trouble. And as Pharaoh hears Joseph interpret this, he's just blown away and he knows that Joseph's right. And Joseph says, you should put somebody in charge of saving all the crops and saving everything so that when this famine comes, Egypt is in a place where they're ready for this next season. And then... And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none as discerning and wise as you are. So you shall be over my house and my people shall order themselves as you command only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph goes from being in prison to being second in command of all of Egypt. It's like being named the vice president, right? 
with only Pharaoh being higher. And I can imagine his hopes once again swell. This is unbelievable. I was just in prison. Now I'm second in command. Well, meanwhile, about 20 years after selling their brother into slavery, as this famine sweeps across the region, including Canaan, where Joseph's parents and betraying brothers still live, uh, they're running out of food and their hopes are bleak. But they hear through the grapevine that there's food in Egypt. So their father, Jacob, sends the boys with a caravan to Egypt with valuables like gold and silver to buy food to bring back to Canaan. Now when they arrive in Egypt, they end up in front of this guy who's in charge of the food distribution. They end up in front of their very brother who 20 years earlier they had sold into slavery. But the thing about it is when they see him, they don't recognize him. He recognizes them immediately, but they don't recognize him. He's lived in Egypt for 20 years. He looks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. And yes, he walks like an Egyptian. And they don't recognize him, but over the course of the next couple months, as he hears them bantering back and forth, Joseph realizes that his brothers very much regret what they've done, that they have remorse for having sold their brother into slavery. And the relationship is reconciled, and Joseph invites, invites his father Jacob and all of his brothers to relocate from the land of Canaan and move to Egypt. And Pharaoh blesses them, says, yes, bring them with you, because Pharaoh loves Joseph and is so grateful for all he's done. So the Israelite people relocate to Egypt, and they're given this land called Goshen, and they're blessed in just a ton of ways when they get there. And they're allowed like privileges, and things go well, and they start to multiply and over the course of the next 400 years, they would grow to a people of uh, a million people. But over the course of that 400 years, Pharaoh would die and Joseph would die. And the memories of what Joseph had done and how he had helped Egypt would fade away. And the new Pharaoh in power was fearful of these Israelites. He's like, there's a million of them. Should they organize? Like they could take us over and wipe us out. And so they decide to oppress the Israelite people, and I'm not sure how long a period of time it was, maybe a hundred years or more, they served as slaves in Egypt. They're in charge of building the cities, they're, they're building, they're making bricks, they're building roads, but they are oppressed, their taskmasters whip them. I mean, it's just an awful life, and I imagine their hopes just dwindled down to next to nothing. They've got an awful life. It's like they've been kicked to the curb and their hope diminishes. Their hope wanes, but hope remains. Their hope once again takes a huge hit. But about 400 years after the Israelites relocated to Egypt, a guy by the name of Moses is born. And Moses' story is amazing. From his survival at birth being put in the Nile to growing up in Pharaoh's home to killing an Egyptian slave master to fleeing the land and serving as a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years to his call by God to lead his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, we read about God talking to Moses. He says, Then the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a.k.a. the promised land. This promised land is coming and there is a glimmer of hope that returns to this people. And then by the hand of God, Moses brings about 10 plagues upon the Egyptians in an effort to get Pharaoh to let his people go. And after the 10th and final plague, Pharaoh finally concedes. And the Israelites take all they want and they start heading out of town with great hope for the future. But unfortunately, just a matter of moments, Pharaoh would change his mind and send the Egyptian army storming after the Israelites who are fleeing. And the Israelites are backed up to the Red Sea with no place to go. And they see the Egyptian army coming in the distance and their fear just overwhelms them and their hopes are dashed again. But Moses says this to the people in Exodus 14. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And so God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through escaping on dry land and they get to the other side of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army follows them into the sea. And once the Egyptian army's in there and the Israelites are safely on the other side, God allows the water to crash in on the Egyptian army and obliterate the army. And the Israelites find themselves standing on the far side of the Red Sea for the first time in hundreds of years as free people. They are free people, and their hopes had to swell. But it's amazing. It's not long before the Israelite hopes diminish as they start grumbling about food and water. Anybody else ever been hangry? Right? That's a hope diminisher, isn't it? So these guys get hangry in a hurry, wondering if they weren't better off living as slaves in Egypt. You know, it's interesting to think though when we're uncertain about the future how a miserable past can look so attractive isn't it crazy like when we don't know what's ahead of us like we'll end up stuck someplace that is just awful perhaps it's a bad relationship perhaps you're still in the job you should have left years ago And because we don't know what the future looks like, we'll stay stuck in this miserable past. But God, in his sovereignty and kindness, provides manna and quail and water, and then the Israelites never go without. Well, several months later, the Israelites arrive at the border of the promised land. And with much anticipation and excitement and hope for a new life, and Moses sends out a group of spies to go look into the promised land and see what it's like and how it's fortified. And after 40 days, these spies return with this report. Numbers chapter 13. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Like the fruit is incredible. However, the people who dwell in the land are large and strong. And the cities are fortified and very large 
They say the people are too strong, they're too big, and that we're like grasshoppers in comparison. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They say, if only we had stayed and died in Egypt or stayed and died in the wilderness. And because of their lack of faith and their trust in God to help them win the land, the fearful Israelites are banished back to the wilderness for 40 years. But candidly, it's kind of hard to judge this group. How often have you looked at the mountain you had to climb, the money you needed to make, or the relationship that needed to be mended and said, I just can't do it. We just can't make that happen. I think every one of us has been there. But with God, all things are possible. So their hope waned and they found themselves wandering in the desert for the next 40 years. But then they would come back after 40 years to, to the border of the promised land and Moses would pass away and he passes the baton of leadership to a guy by the name of Joshua. And Joshua is a great leader. And in the first chapter of the book of Joshua, chapter 9, God encourages Joshua. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Have hope for I am always with you. Whenever you find yourself facing tasks that cause you to pause, remember these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Well, Joshua, along with the ark and the million Israelites, would cross the Jordan and start to occupy the promised land. And hopes were starting to be realized. And Joshua was a great leader. But after he passed away, after his death, leadership transitions to some individuals, 12 individuals known as the judges. And some of the names of the judges that you might be familiar are Deborah and Gideon, Samson and Samuel. Deborah, I can't spend much time on it, but don't miss that a woman served in the Old Testament as the spiritual leader of all of Israel for a season. And here's what we read about judges, the judges in chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. They did not listen to their judges. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. But whenever the judge died, the people, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. So for a period of 325 years, these judges led Israel. That's longer than the United States has even been in existence. And these judges would guide Israel, pointing them back to God and to his ways. But in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, we read this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar in this season? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's been the struggle of humanity since Genesis chapter 3. But I don't think, like, we have so much access now that we've never had in our lifetimes to see 
so many people doing everything that's right in their own eyes. And we can live like that, right? I can take care of my problems and my circumstances and I can expound or expound my opinion. But God calls us to something much bigger than that. He calls us to do whatever is right in His eyes. And when we do whatever is right in His eyes, we impact humanity for good. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We love our God above all other things. And we impact our world for Him and His sake. Well, Samuel, Samuel's the final judge. But while Samuel led Israel fairly well, neither of his two boys were fit to serve as God's judge to Israel. And Samuel warns them against a king. They say, if you get a king, he's going to force you to go into battle. He's going to make you pay taxes. He's going to oppress you. But the people in Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. I say, give us a king. The people are hoping for a king. And next week, we're going to hear more about these coming kings and eventually on Christmas Eve about King Jesus. But as I was thinking about how to wrap up this message, I kind of sense God nudging me towards leaning into my spiritual gifts. My, two of my top spiritual gifts are hospitality and encouragement. And so as we look back at this 1,700 years, I realize that life is like this, right? Like we have highs and lows. We have fears and then we'll have successes. And there's a constant flux between hope and discouragement. But there's also that tension that hope always remains despite our circumstances. And you've got to know that this hope is different than hoping than hoping you get what you want for Christmas. It's different than hoping some days the, someday the Vikings will win the Super Bowl. A Christian author Ann Voskamp says, hope is not an abstract concept. Hope is not a mirage. Hope is what we do. And when, when you don't know what to do, hope in Christ is always what you do. This hope is an action, knowing that God is in control and Christ's victory is assured. When we put our hope in Christ, we know that he will win. Now, I talked about hospitality and encouragement. What I want you to know is that regardless of what you've ever done, regardless of what your regrets are, regardless of what your beliefs are in this moment about who God is, he invites you to partake in this hope. He wants you to make him your hope. And he offers that to every person on the face of planet earth freely. And he says, you're welcome. He says, you're welcomed into the kingdom of God. You're welcome to be a child of mine. And I want to encourage you as well. You know, Abraham hoped for a family. Joseph hoped to get out of slavery and then out of prison. Moses hoped people would listen to him. And the Israelites hoped for a king that would make all things right. No matter what your mountain is, no matter what you're facing right now, when your hope wanes, you can trust that hope remains. 
This hope lasts for all time. This hope never fades. It fades in our minds and our hearts. But God will never leave you or forsake you. He says, be strong and be courageous. Do not be dismayed for I am always with you. Hold near to your heart that in your highest of highs and your lowest of lows, hope always remains. And as the Apostle Paul encourages us in his letter to the church at Rome, in Romans 15, 13, he says, may the God of hope fill you, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. And that's really important, the trust in Him peace. As you trust in Him, may He fill you with joy and peace so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that does this in our lives. When nothing makes sense, when our man-made plans can't make a lick out of how to fix a problem, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us hope. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us direction. Let's pray. Father, I met with a mentor of mine this past week, and he said how important it is to just pause and be silent. So we're going to be silent for just a few moments. Father, as I think about the people gathered in this room and the friends that are watching online, I recognize that a lot of us are in a place of pain. A lot of us, I don't feel or sense much hope in this season. We look at what's happening in our world, maybe it's what's happening just directly in our lives. Uh, Father, for those that feel like they're at the end of their hope rope, I ask that you would fill them, Lord. Fill them with your goodness and your love and your ways. Use your Holy Spirit to fill their hearts and minds with the reassurance that you are good and you love them and you have them in the palm of your hand and you care for them so deeply and you want to guide them in their steps and that you will care for them in each and every circumstance. And Father, for the many of us that maybe we feel like our hope's just fine or maybe we are doing great right now. Sometimes when the things are really, really good, we kind of forget who's the source of all that. We forget our need for you and we forget your incredible love. And so I pray for each of us in this season. We're just what, 13 days away from Christmas. Lord, may the next two weeks be a time of just intimate fellowship with our Savior. May we experience the hope and peace that only you can provide. May we sense your love and your goodness. And may we celebrate your joy and your coming. 
Father, I pray that you would just guide every person in their walk with you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.